Sentencing today for Enrique Tarrio, the former leader of the right-wing extremist Proud Boys group, for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. It's Tuesday, September 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a look at what's expected in Washington today as Congress returns from a month-long recess. Also this hour. It is just so inhumane. The most basic rights a person could have is to fend for themselves. The struggle in New York City to expedite work permits for the 100,000 migrants who've arrived in the last 18 months. And the push to raise the mandatory retirement age for commercial airline pilots to 67 is getting pushback from the pilots' union. The number 67 in itself is an arbitrary number. The proponents for it don't have any data that says 67 is the right number. Partly sunny in the 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The former leader of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, will be sentenced today in federal court in Washington. Enrique Tarrio is facing decades in prison for his role in the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz says Tario is among five members of his group convicted of seditious conspiracy or other crimes. Prosecutors say Tario and his lieutenants saw themselves as foot soldiers of the right. He was convicted along with four other members of the Proud Boys back in May. On January 6, 2021, Tario wasn't at the Capitol. Rather, he was at a hotel room outside of Washington, D.C., Prosecutors say from this position, Tario urged his members to take control of the U.S. Capitol. Prosecutors are seeking 33 years for Tario. But the judge is likely to give him less. Some of Tario's co-defendants have received lengthy prison sentences, but shorter than what the government had requested. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. The Texas State Senate will open an impeachment trial today against Attorney General Ken Paxton. He is accused of several counts of corruption. Paxton says he is innocent and derides the case as a politically motivated sham. Leaders of the United Auto Workers say they are pressuring the big three automakers to agree to huge changes in their contracts. UAW workers are seeking a 46% pay raise, a 32-hour work week with full pay, and the return of traditional pensions. UAW President Sean Fain says the union is determined. If we don't get our share of social and economic justice, I can guarantee you one thing. Come September 14th, we're going to take action to get it by any means necessary. Officials with General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis say the union's demands are unreasonable. They cite international competition as the industry changes to electric vehicles. China's top leader, Xi Jinping, will not be among the world leaders who are attending the Group of 20 summit in New Delhi, India, this coming weekend. Instead, China is sending its premier. Beijing has not given an explanation for this snub, but NPR's Emily Fang reports why she will be absent. China's foreign ministry said Premier Li Qiang, widely seen as a Xi ally, will attend the summit. Xi Jinping has not said why he won't attend the meeting, which will be hosted by India's Narendra Modi. Xi does have more than enough to do at home, however. Critical sectors of the Chinese economy have been tanking, namely real estate and construction, and that's dragged down economic growth and worsened business sentiment in the country. And China-India relations have gone from bad to worse. Soldiers from the two countries had a fatal brawl near a contested border in 2020. And since then, China and India have expelled all of each other's journalists. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
For millions of customers, Disney-owned TV networks went dark last Thursday amid stalled negotiations with a major cable carrier. Over the holiday weekend, Spectrum subscribers missed out on programming from Disney-owned networks, including the return of college football on ESPN. As NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports, Disney is now hitting back by pointing the subscribers affected to viewing alternatives. More than 14 million Spectrum Cable subscribers have been unable to access Disney-owned networks, including the Disney Channel, FX, and National Geographic, as well as their local ABC stations. Disney pulled content from the provider as the company struggled to reach a new multi-year contract. Disney says the rates and terms they are seeking are driven by the marketplace, while Spectrum's parent company, Charter Communications, says Disney's demands are excessive, adding that this dispute has larger implications for the future of consumer choice. In a sign the clash isn't ending soon, Disney has now released a statement suggesting Spectrum customers turn to Hulu Plus Live TV or other streaming platforms where Disney networks can also be found. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. The first Africa Climate Summit is underway in Nairobi, Kenya. Delegates are focused on building financing to pay for green initiatives. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is there. He says the vast majority of nations affected by climate change are on the African continent. African diplomats say other countries have vowed to provide up to $100 billion a year to finance climate projects, but say the promises have been unfulfilled. It's NPR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. This is WBUR in Boston. A Rhode Island man is accused of stealing from a Massachusetts nonprofit that helps start up entrepreneurs. WBUR Simone Rios says the theft involved more than $100,000 in laptops. Prosecutors say Jonathan Alexander Mateo stole and resold at least one computer from a Rhode Island company before going on to scale up the scheme at Mass Challenge. Jim Borgasani is a spokesman for the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. He was a Mass Challenge employee and he used uh, the uh, organization's credit card to purchase 142 laptop computers, which he then um, apparently stole. Um, and we're assuming sold. Prosecutors believe Mateo used the profit from the Massachusetts thefts to cover restitution he was ordered to pay for the Rhode Island theft. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Polls are now open in Worcester for preliminary elections. Residents will make initial picks for city council and school committee. Polls are open until 8 tonight. Top vote-getters will move on to general elections in November. It's back to school today for students at UMass Amherst. As Sam Hudsick reports, the school is now led by a new chancellor. Kumbhale Subhaswamy led UMass Amherst for more than a decade. His replacement, Javier Reyes, began in July after leaving the University of Illinois, Chicago. He's an economist and will be the first Latino chancellor at the UMass campus. Reyes has said a top priority is to make the school a, quote, welcoming, diverse, inclusive kind of place. UMass is giving the new chancellor a rather significant pay bump. Reyes will take home 560000 in base pay each year, nearly 50000 more than Subhaswamy. As for the outgoing chancellor, he's sticking around and getting about 400000 a year for an interim position serving all five UMass campuses. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sam Hudzik. A fire in Dorchester has forced nearly three dozen people out of their homes. The Boston Fire Department says the fire tore through a triple Decker yesterday afternoon. Two other homes were also damaged. One firefighter suffered minor injuries. It's 7.08. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. The Portacalis family is headed to Greece from director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast only in theaters September 8th. The Red Sox beat the Rays 7-3 yesterday in St. Petersburg. The two teams will meet again tonight. Partly sunny and humid today. It'll be in the mid to upper 80s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures around 70. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the upper 80s. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. The Senate returns to Washington today after a month-long August recess. And there's a lot on the agenda. First up is a fight over government funding that could turn into a potential shutdown. Yes, feels like we've been here before. Mm-hmm. And the Senate's top Republican, Mitch McConnell, faces questions after another episode when he froze at a public event. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Can Congress avoid a shutdown? You know, once again, they're going to be racing the clock. Federal agencies run out of cash on September 30th, and the House and Senate haven't agreed on any of the 12 annual spending bills. The problem is the two chambers aren't even working off of the same math. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden negotiated a debt ceiling deal in May that set overall government spending levels. But a group of House conservatives who didn't like that deal forced the Speaker to craft bills at a lower level. The Senate is sticking to the deal, so essentially the two are on a collision course. There's broad agreement that Congress needs to pass a short-term bill to avoid a shutdown. They're working on what's called a continuing resolution, or CR, to keep agencies funded at the current levels through this fall. But even that CR is going to be a fight. Some far-right conservatives have issued demands about attaching items, things like a partisan border security bill. So they're still pretty far apart. Okay, and besides avoiding a shutdown, what else is on the agenda? Disaster aid and money for Ukraine are the two big things the Biden administration wants Congress to pass this fall. The White House has asked for about $16 billion in emergency aid to respond to the recent disaster needs coming out of Maui after the fires and the floods and the hurricanes that hit several states this summer. The other big ask is about $20 billion for Ukraine. Even though there's bipartisan support for continuing aid for Ukraine on the Hill, some conservatives still don't want to approve any money. Let's talk about top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell. He froze up, struggled to speak for about 30 seconds at a press event. Uh, This is the second time that's happened in two months. How is he doing? I mean, that's the big question. The Capitol physician has cleared McConnell to work, but this latest episode, combined with the other one you mentioned, were just really jarring and there's still a lot of questions. In March, McConnell fell and suffered a concussion, and the Capitol physician said lightheadedness was a symptom of recovering from that concussion. So far, Senate Republican colleagues have supported the 81-year-old senator, but there's going to be so much attention on his appearance on the floor later today and at his weekly press conference tomorrow. The House returns next week, and Speaker Kevin McCarthy is signaling an impeachment inquiry is moving ahead. So what basis is there of possible high crimes or misdemeanors by the president? House Republicans haven't presented one yet. They haven't uncovered any evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. Some are alleging corruption related to his son Hunter Biden's business deals during the time Biden was vice president. But they haven't shown that the president himself received any financial benefit. 
McCarthy's coming under increasing pressure from conservatives, especially after the new indictments of former President Trump over the summer. But there's a split. Some Republican moderates do not want to move ahead without concrete evidence. And McCarthy did say to a conservative outlet he won't start impeachment without a vote. It's unclear whether he has those votes right now. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thank you. As Congress mulls over whether to approve more money for Ukraine, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is replacing his defense minister. To understand what this means, we turn to Michael Bosokiu, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and former spokesman for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Michael, thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So this announcement came in the middle of Ukraine's counteroffensive to try and take back some control of Ukrainian territory from Russia. What did you make of the timing? Um, interesting timing. Um, actually, the exit of Alexei Reznikov, uh, the former defense minister, was widely expected, especially mm-hmm. after the revelations of uh, corruption uh, charges in the army, not directly related to him, but in his ministry. Um But, you know, it's got to be said, this is just a blip on the radar screen if you consider all the changes in the top echelons of the Russian military establishment under Mr. Putin. So um, uh, Reznikov has been there for over 500 days. Uh, President Zelensky praised him for his service. And it was suggested that it's time for a change, uh, new challenges ahead, and that uh, Reznikov actually is said to have requested uh, leaving as well. Interesting. Do you see this more uh, uh, as a attempt to clean up corruption? I mean, you mentioned corruption, military contractors inflating the price of food, cases where men allegedly paid bribes to avoid military service, or is it about this grinding counteroffensive that hasn't yielded the um, successes that were expected? I think it's more the first one. Uh, mm-hmm. For domestic and international consumption, there's a huge, huge, uh, I would say, anger in Ukraine. And I've been based there since the start of the war to clean up corruption uh, because it's it's regarded as especially uh, distasteful or disgusting during a time of war when people are dipping their hands into the money pot. And then, of course, um, internationally, you, you mentioned, uh, your reporter mentioned about $20 billion, um, on the table right now for Ukraine. And it's really, really important for the Zelensky administration to send out those signals that the cleanup is happening. Mm. Uh, there's the billions coming in, but there's also going to be hundreds of billions coming in in international money for reconstruction of Ukraine. So about the international audience as well, because Biden, President Biden is anticipating pushback from members of Congress who want accountability of how U.S. aid to Ukraine is used. Do you think this will have an impact, this, this change? <laughs> Well, if indeed there is opposition, I think that is something that the Russians are betting on. They want to run out the clock on this war Mm -hmm. to the next elections, hope uh, a Trump or one of his uh, circle gets in, and then we'll cut a deal that is not in favor of Ukraine, but in favor of Russia. So I think that is part of the Russian uh, military strategy. Uh, It's going to be a long war of attrition unless the Ukrainians can indeed um, break through and uh, push the Russians back. Now, when Zelensky made this announcement, he said it was time for a, quote, new approach. So what do we know about the new defense minister, Rustam Amarov, and how his approach might be different? 
Well, I got to say, he sure takes a lot of boxes. <laughs> He's got very strong international partnerships, especially with Turkey and Saudi Arabia. And these, by the way, these personal personal relationships helped him negotiate prisoner exchanges with both countries, as well as that Black Sea Grain Initiative. Um, he was also able to turn around um, his ministry. It's called the State Property Fund. First half of 2023, it, he, it brought in $49 million uh, by auctioning off state property. And then finally, um, he's a Crimean Tartar and a Muslim. And I spoke to his party leader uh, earlier today, Kira Rudik, and she says that specific um, background of his shows that we'll never give up on Crimea. So that must have raised a few eyebrows in Moscow when mm. uh, this appointment came through. And how will it impact the war, do you think? Well, I, I think um, the war is mostly in the hands of General Zaluzhny. He's very popular in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, and they, they've um, they've been making some recent successes. And just quickly, the main strategy right now, I think, is to sever that land bridge that connects uh, the Russian mainland with Crimea. Ukrainians seem to be making substantial progress in that regard. So watch this space. Michael Bosakiu, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council based in Odessa, Ukraine. Michael, thank you. My pleasure. Let's remember an all-star of late 90s alternative rock. Steve Harwell, the former frontman of the band Smash Mouth, died yesterday at the age of 56. The cause was liver failure. Smash Mouth formed in San Jose, California in 1994. In 97, they released a debut album with this hit. So don't A video for the song captures the band's attitude and look. They're a little bit ska, a little bit retro, in bowling shirts, fedoras, and shades. But it wasn't until their next album that Smash Mouth scored their biggest hit, and Harwell's voice was front and center. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking... In 1999, All Star reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100. In 2001, the song was featured on the soundtrack of the animated film Shrek, along with their cover of the Monkees' hit, I'm a Believer. Now, Smash Mouth never had another big hit, but a younger generation breathed new life into All Star by turning it into a meme. YouTube creator John Sudano has racked up millions of views by mashing it up with other songs, including John Lennon's Imagine. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed through the rules and I hit the ground running. In an interview with NPR in 2018, Steve Harwell and guitarist Greg Camp were asked how they felt about performing their early hits over and over again. Here's Harwell. We're proud to have these iconic songs that Greg has written and uh, be able to perform them every night, you know, so it feels good. Now, in recent years, Steve Harwell's behavior on stage tarnished Smash Mouth's legacy. In 2020, the band performed at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally flouting COVID-19 protocol. 
And during a performance in 2021, a video shows Harwell making a gesture that appears to be a Nazi salute. Mm, not long after that incident, Harwell announced that he was stepping away from the band, citing physical and mental health issues. A statement sent to NPR by longtime Smash Mouth manager Robert Hayes says Harwell died at his home in Boise, Idaho, surrounded by family and friends. He says Harwell lived a full throttle life. It ain't no joke, I like to This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from the president of the Airline Pilots Association about why his union opposes legislation to raise the mandatory retirement age for pilots. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass TLC's Board Ready Boot Camp, now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. Very few Americans say they're better off financially this year than they were last year. That's according to a large new survey. And they're feeling that way despite indicators that say the economy is on the up. About a year ago, inflation was like 9%. It was over 9%. And now it's 3 That's a great achievement. So what's behind the pessimism Americans have about their own financial lives? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly sunny with a high near 86 today. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters September 15th. Tickets available now. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Listen closely to these iconic rock and roll songs because there's going to be a pop quiz afterwards. All right, name the artists who performed these songs. Can't do it? Neither could I. So many of the biggest hits of the 1960s were sung by African-American girl groups whose names have faded into the background. Well, a new book puts the spotlight back on these artists. It's called But Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Authors Emily Sue Leibowitz and Laura Flam interviewed more than 100 people from that era, including former girl group members, like the ones you heard singing at the top, The Crystals, the Marvelettes, and the Chiffons. The singers who voiced those songs are, for the most part, unknown. 
And the truth is that the music is everywhere in the world. Songs that people fell in love to, got married to, their hearts were broken to for the first time. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said, Mama said, They were young women when the group started. Some of them were as young as 11 years old, and their careers lasted, you know, something like 18 months in most cases. They weren't considered an investment by their record labels or managers because the assumption was that they would leave the music industry and go on to have families. Right, which was very much in line with, you know, society in the 1950s and 60s when they were performing. Someone in an interview that we did described the girl groups as the sweetener, quote unquote, in terms of introducing black music to a white audience. He's so The girl groups flew up the charts, and they were immediately sent to tour all over the country, including the South. And they ended up becoming sort of soldiers on the front of the civil rights movement. Look at the covers of the albums of the girl groups. Many of them don't feature a picture of the group because it made it more marketable to a national market. The women of the girl groups would often show up to these concerts in the South with people who didn't even know they were Black. The Crystals showed up once to a show in the South, and people didn't know that they were a Black group. They didn't allow them to perform, and they didn't have anywhere to stay. They ended up sleeping in the lobby of the venue. Talk about the origins of the song, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? It's an amazing story of young women both writing and singing this hit against many odds. Yeah, the group, the Shirelles, did not want to record the song at all, saying that it's too country. Is that code for too white? I think so, but Luther Dixon, their producer, promised he would rework something, and they really didn't have a choice in the matter. They were going to record the song. In the meantime, Carol King, who was 18, bought a little book and figured out how to write an arrangement for a small orchestra of violas. They fell in love with the sound, and they create this anthem together that goes on to reach number one and really kick off the girl group phenomenon. Wow. When Will You Love Me Tomorrow came out, it was groundbreaking. It was possibly the first song, women expressing their own feelings and fears about sex, and really marked a time of change in the country for women. And the Shirelles were the voice of that. Will you still love me tomorrow? 
they didn't want to initially sing this song, and yet they were told, "No, you're singing this song." Can you explain a little bit more how little control these girls had on their own careers? They're not writing their own music. They're not choosing their own music. Even on tour, their manager, like the Chantel's manager, Richard Barrett, would lock them in their dressing rooms. The payment for performance was paid to their manager, and then most of the groups were told that money was put in a trust for them, which usually did not exist. What would you say are these girl groups' lasting legacy today? I think there's a pretty much direct line into what you can hear today. I don't think we would have Destiny's Child and Beyonce if these women hadn't forged the idea of the female vocal harmony R&B group. They were the first to do so many things and inspired so many other girls. Whoopi Goldberg described to us the moment that she saw the Supremes on TV, and it changed her whole concept of what she would be able to do with her life, seeing what the Supremes had pushed forward for themselves. And girl groups have continued. There are girl groups in the 70s, 80s, 90s, now. All of those groups got their idea from seeing somebody else do it first, and that was those first girl groups of the 50s and 60s. Lara Flam and Emily Sue Leibowitz are the authors of But Will You Love Me Tomorrow? An oral history of the 60s girl groups. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. So tell me now And I won't ask again Will you still love me tomorrow? Will you still love me tomorrow? This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. We have an update on recovery efforts from Hurricane Adalia. Some Gulf Coast communities that were hit were still recovering from hurricanes that struck three years ago. It's 7.29. Use the WBWAR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russian President Vladimir Putin is rejecting efforts by Turkey's president to get Moscow to rejoin a U.N. agreement on grain exports from Black Sea ports in Ukraine. NPR's Charles Maine says the two met yesterday in Sochi. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan came hoping to coax President Putin back into the U.N. deal uh, that was first brokered by Turkey and the U.N. Uh, and to provide safe passage uh, for Ukrainian grain despite the war in Ukraine. Now, going in, Erdogan and his team expressed cautious optimism, and yet it quickly became clear that whatever positive aspects of this relationship between the two leaders just wasn't enough to convince Putin to rejoin the deal. Putin later said the West must first meet its obligations on Russian agricultural exports. The impeachment trial of suspended Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton begins today in the state Senate in Austin. Sergio Martinez Beltran with the Texas Newsroom says Paxton is facing 16 articles of impeachment from lawmakers in the state house. 
seven counts of disregarding his official duties, three counts of making false statements in official records, two counts each of constitutional bribery and obstruction of justice. He's also been accused of misapplying and misappropriating public resources, conspiracy or attempted conspiracy, the religion of duty, unfitness for office, and abusing the public trust. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. More than 5,000 kids in the state's family shelter system are heading to school this fall. Some of those children are newly arrived immigrants. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, the state is scrambling to make sure they have routine childhood vaccinations. Under federal law, homeless children should be able to enroll in school even without vaccination records. But Dawn Fakuda from the Department of Public Health says rules vary from one district to the next. There are also local determinations and interpretations of that policy, uh, and so it is a school district level determination. She says the state is deploying teams this week to bring shots to shelters. Some advocates say the effort is too late and too small. They say many newly arrived children will start school late because of their vaccination status. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Union firefighters in Boston now have a tentative contract agreement with the city. Mayor Michelle Wu says the agreement was reached over the weekend. The new contract comes after months of stalled negotiations. Neither side is sharing details of the deal until the contract is voted on by union members. A ribbon-cutting ceremony will be held today at the new Cummings School of Nursing and Health Sciences at Endicott College. Endicott President Stephen DeSalvo says the new school houses the undergraduate and graduate nursing programs, along with sports science programs. He says they have created two replicas of emergency rooms. I've had people visit from hospitals and say to me, what you have in the simulation lab is better than what we have in the hospital settings right now. So we built what we think is a state-of-the-art facility based on what is being offered in the hospital setting. DeSalvo says Endicott has a partnership with Beverly and Addison hospitals to allow students to do their rotations at those facilities. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. The Red Sox beat the Tampa Bay Rays 7-3 yesterday. It was the first win in St. Petersburg for the Sox in 14 games. The teams will play again tonight. The Red Sox are now four and a half games out of a wildcard spot. A mix of sun and clouds today will have a high in the mid-80s. Tonight, more clouds move in and temperatures drop to around 70. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies and highs in the upper 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Daniel Estrin. 
Jury selection begins today in Canada in a case that will test the country's anti-terrorism laws. Yeah, Nathaniel Veltman is accused of killing three generations of the Ufsell family. They were walking in London, Ontario two years ago when a pickup truck jumped a curb and mowed the family down. Prosecutors say they were targeted because of their Muslim faith. Janella Massa is a freelance journalist based in Canada, and she joins us now. Good morning. Hi, good morning. So three generations of a family killed. I'm, I'm looking at a beautiful photo of them right now. They're dressed in pastel colors. Who were they? Well, Daniel, uh, this was a family that was out for a walk. Uh, it was the height of COVID, and you have to remember that Ontario had some of the strictest lockdown laws uh, during the pandemic. Walking outside was pretty much the only thing you could do. Uh, as you said, a pickup truck jumping the curb uh, while they were at an intersection. Uh, those who were killed were a mother and father, their 15-year-old daughter, and uh, the mother of the man. Most notably, a nine-year-old boy was the only survivor. He was left orphaned. Uh, his parents, his sister, and his grandmother killed. So this was, you know, an incredibly heinous crime that shook the community uh, two summers ago. And in the following days, uh, police were quick to call this a hate-motivated attack, that the family was targeted because of their faith. Uh, you'll note in that photo, uh, the mother wearing a hijab, a headscarf. Uh, they were originally from Pakistan, uh, visibly Muslim, uh, visible minorities. So, you know, this was incredibly troubling to the community and sparked a conversation about uh, Islamophobia and about anti-Muslim hate in Canada, because this isn't the first uh, attack of its kind. Four years before, six men killed uh, in a London mosque when a man opened fire. And what do we know about the defendant? So the accused, Nathaniel Veltman, he was 20 years old at the time of his arrest. He's facing four murder charges and one attempted murder charge. But he's also facing terrorism-related charges. Um, we know that he was arrested willingly in a mall parking lot about four and a half miles from the scene. He was wearing a military-style helmet when police took him in. And the Dodge Ram truck was found with extensive damage to its front end and smoke coming out of the engine. Now, we don't know what Veltman said to police when he was taken into custody. We don't know if he admitted to killing the family because of their faith. That information remains under a publication ban. But partially unsealed documents uh, do reveal that he may have accessed the dark web to consume white supremacist and hate-related material online. So no doubt that we will learn more about the possible motives as this trial unfolds over the next 12 weeks. So what significance does this case have nationally in Canada? So this is the first time that a jury is considering terrorism charges. There were other cases where they were applied, but they never went to trial because the accused pleaded guilty. Uh, but what's interesting are the cases where terror laws weren't applied, uh, notably that uh, case of the Quebec mosque killing where six men were killed. So there is this question about this sort of uneven application of the law. Now, it's worth noting that terrorism charges don't necessarily result in harsher sentencing. First degree murder carries a life sentence with no parole for at least 25 years. So really, it's about the message that it sends as to who is labeled a terrorist and who isn't. Janela Massa, freelance journalist in Canada. Thank you so much. Thank you. Air travel is booming, and airlines are struggling to keep up, in part because of a pilot shortage. Congress wants to ease the pressure by raising the mandatory retirement age for commercial airline pilots from 65 to 67. The House approved that in July, and the Senate will vote on it this month. Our colleague A. Martinez spoke with Captain Jason Ambrosi, president of the Airline Pilots Association, 
to learn why the pilots' union opposes the change. The last time the retirement age was raised from 60 to 65, there was a significant study over a five-year period by ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, that supported raising the age. The FAA at that point followed suit and raised the age from 60 to 65 here in the United States. This time, the international standard remains 65, and there hasn't been any study to say that raising the age is safe or is not safe. So as the FAA and DOT have said, proper study should be completed prior to making a change to a safety regulation. Couldn't you go off of what other countries such as Canada, Japan, and Australia are doing who have higher limits and and some no limit at all? Well, some of those countries, as you say, have higher limits and their operations are significantly less nuanced as ours. We're the number one leader in the world. We do more flying than anyone. Uh, Before we would raise it, obviously, we would need to do our own homework and make sure that an increase is appropriate because of the large amount of international operations we conduct. How much homework and what kind of homework would you need? Look, a safety agency needs to look at it. You know, an FAA, NASA, somebody needs to take a look at this issue and decide if there's any mitigation that needs to happen as part of of making a change. The number 67 in itself is an arbitrary number. The proponents for it don't have any data that says 67 is the right number. All right. Now, some members of your union don't support the uh, union's position on this, saying that experience makes them safer pilots. What do you, what do you say to those members that uh, believe that? And I understand this is a very passionate issue. Um, both sides have their own interests at heart, and a vast majority of our members support keeping the, the number where it is. Does a shortage of pilots maybe give you a stronger hand when it comes to negotiating on salaries? Is that something that uh, maybe contributes to this position? Uh, well, it doesn't contribute to this position. The airlines took the uh, steps that they felt necessary during the pandemic to bump a lot of pilots to lower equipment and a lot of early retirements now getting caught back up. They're getting caught back up as evidenced by, you know, this summer's operations have been far better than last summer's operations. The light is at the end of the tunnel. This is not a problem in search of a solution. The, The solution's already there. If the retirement age were to increase, Jason, what benefits might pilots experience? The only obvious benefit is they would be permitted to work for two more years should they choose and enjoy the contractual gains that we've negotiated in the post-pandemic environment. The Washington Post reported that the Federal Aviation Administration is investigating nearly 5,000 pilots for falsifying medical records to hide conditions that might lead them to be grounded. Jason, is part of your concern that that number could maybe rise if pilots are allowed to fly until the age of 67? Look, pilots are responsible to accurately report any medical conditions they may have. I can tell you that the airline pilot profession is one of the most highly scrutinized and regulated careers, and for good reason. We're continuously evaluated through our careers, through training, medical exams, you know, safety audits, and random flight checks by the FAA. ALPA and its members you know, appreciate the common sense approach that the FAA is taking to address this issue, but it primarily does not involve commercial airline pilots. All right, that's Jason Ambrosi, president of the Airline Pilots Association. Jason, thanks a lot. All right, thank you for your time today.
This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your morning with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, a new report finds that both Russians and Ukrainians used globally banned cluster munitions last year, killing hundreds of people. Kids heading to the first day of school in places like Newton, Hingham, Weston, and Watertown will have to cope with our ongoing streak of hot weather. Temperatures will be in the mid to upper 80s today under partly sunny skies. It grows overcast tonight and falls to around 70. Tomorrow, the heat continues with upper 80s and mostly sunny skies. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Porter Square Books. Author and illustrator Grace Lin presents her new picture book, Chinese Menu, September 10th. Details and registration at portersquarebooks.com. Union workers in Boston are showing their support for striking members of the union that represents writers and actors. Workers marched from the Boston Park Plaza Hotel to Downtown Crossing yesterday to support SAG-AFTRA members. Darlene Lombos is with the Greater Boston Labor Council, which helped organize the event. The CEOs need to know that we are not going to back down, that we will stand in solidarity with our union sisters and brothers and siblings, and we will stand with our SAG-AFTRA brothers and sisters for as long as it takes. SAG-AFTRA members are on strike while negotiating a new agreement to increase wages. We should note many WBUR employees are SAG-AFTRA members, but they are covered by a different contract than film and television actors. Duncan franchises in Massachusetts have paid out more than a half a million dollars for breaking child labor laws. That's according to a new report from the state attorney general. It finds that franchises let teenagers work more than nine hours a day. Others let them work without permits. There's been no response from Duncan. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faldin. New York City has become one of the major battlegrounds over immigration. About 100,000 migrants have arrived there since the spring of last year. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, along with local businesses and advocates, is demanding that the federal government expedite work authorizations for migrants. And it's not just New York. Massachusetts and Illinois are making similar requests. The idea is the faster people can work, the quicker they can graduate from the shelters, which are saturated. Joining us now to explain is NPR's Jasmine Gars. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. So how long does it take to get a work authorization right now? Well, if you're in the U.S. seeking asylum, which so many people in this recent wave of migration are hoping to do, it takes a very long time. You have to first figure out how to apply, which can be confusing. And then once you apply, you have to wait another 150 days until you can even apply for a work permit. So that's at least six months waiting for a work authorization. I was at a rally last week and I talked to Alex 
Alexander Rappaport, who runs several soup kitchens in the city. Here's what he had to say. It is just so un-American, so inhumane. The most important, the most basic rights a person could have is to fend for themselves. Hmm. So where does Congress stand on reducing this wait time? There are proposals in both the House and Senate right now which look into shortening the amount of time an asylum seeker has to wait for a work permit. But Congress is so divided on this matter, it it just might not pass. What is New York asking for from the federal government, and, and is it something that's feasible? Okay, so this is where it gets a bit complicated, so bear with me. There's several different kinds of immigration status. Um, One way you can be in the U.S. is with something called temporary protected status, or TPS. And the president can decide who to extend that to. It's typically people from countries where there's been a natural disaster or unrest. And temporary protected status comes with a work authorization. So One thing the Adams administration has asked is that President Biden extend temporary protected status to more people so they can apply for a work authorization right away. But, you know, there's already such a backlog in processing those requests. And in order to get more staffing to process them, well, that's up to Congress again. Hmm. Are they divided on that, too? Yeah, no, there's been no movement on that at all. Okay, so two places where there isn't movement. So what's the White House saying? The Biden administration has requested $600 million from Congress. Also, senior White House officials met with New York Governor Kathy Hochul last week, and they announced they're going to be launching a national campaign with information on how to apply for work authorization if you're eligible. Now, here's New York City public advocate Jamani Williams responding to all that. It's not enough to send federal staff to New York City. We need to work to establish nationwide infrastructure, nationwide reform. That is what we need. And I am clear that Republican governors really started this mess. But it's a Democratic White House that is making it worse, making it worse, making it worse. And that is the mood among New York City officials and advocates right now. Thank you, but you're not doing enough. Hmm. Jasmine Garst covers immigration for NPR. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, advocates for gun rights and gun control are reaching a rare consensus in an effort to reduce suicides, which account for more than half of the country's gun fatalities. It's 7.49. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may meet with President Vladimir Putin in Russia to discuss supplying weapons for use in Ukraine. 
The former leader of the right-wing extremist Proud Boys group is due to be sentenced today for his role in the January 6 attack on the Capitol. And the impeachment trial for Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton starts today as he faces numerous charges. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the half-god of rainfall at ART. Women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth. Two weeks only. Start September 8th, amrep.org. Upper 80s and partly sunny today. It falls to around 70 tonight, then upper 80s and mostly sunny tomorrow. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faldin. It's hurricane season, a season of anxiety for people in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Three years ago, two hurricanes hit this town near the Gulf of Mexico over the course of several weeks. As Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, the recovery is still going slowly. There's one simple way to measure Lake Charles' recovery. People will come by and they'll count the blue roofs. Braylon Harris is talking about the blue tarps that cover still unrepaired roofs. He's the director of Southwest Louisiana Responds, which helps coordinate aid across this city of 80,000 people. Lake Charles sits in the southwestern corner of Louisiana. The casinos and chemical plants reopened long ago, while downtown restaurants are back selling fried shrimp. But many homes still need repairs, even the ones without blue tarps, Harris says. We're riding by what is probably three blocks of houses. Every one of them has new roofs. Just look in the windows, though. Nobody's home. That's because they still need to be gutted after rain rotted their insides. You pull up at this house, it looks good. The outside looks pretty. Vanessa Bellini has spent the last three years making repairs to her home, and still her living room floor has a big gap. It had caved in after the rains. I wouldn't let nobody really come to my house. I work at a law firm. I know how it works. So I was like, you're not coming to my house and sue me. <laughs> Bellany had a home warranty instead of insurance, but it ended up not covering any of her damages. She's a legal assistant, and to this day, she hears of clients fighting insurance companies for payouts. So I see that every day, every single day at work. Now, Hurricane Laura hit early in the pandemic that delayed help from FEMA and aid groups, which left people and their homes vulnerable when Hurricane Delta hit just six weeks later. Bellany's own house still needs a lot of work, and she's not sure if she wants to spend the money. Because hurricane season may be coming again. (sighs) So we just feel like we're in the same predicament all over again, you know? I'm sorry. That tension rises across Lake Charles whenever it rains. When it rains, there's panic. That's Braylon Harris again and Sarah Drott with Southwest Louisiana Responds. The humidity means mold is a big deal here. So even though it's about 100 degrees today, Harris is not praying for rain. Anyone here in Southwest Louisiana, give us dry and hot any day uh, rather than the anxiety and the concerns. But also, hot summer heats up all the water in the Gulf, yeah. which makes oh. for a crazy hurricane season. Yeah. Warmer waters in the Gulf this summer caused scientists to predict this season would have more storms than usual. Hurricane Adalia hit Florida during the heart of hurricane season, which runs through mid-October. For Harris and others in Lake Charles, relief comes from faith, though the centers of that worship are also still recovering. If I 
lost my clothing, I'll be all right. But if I lost my joy, I don't know. The Breath of Life Praise and Worship Center had its sanctuary destroyed by Hurricane Laura. So the congregation now gathers in the church's former gym for Sunday service. Only four people showed up, including Zena Siverand. Many of the other members have not moved back to Lake Charles. When one or two are gathered, it's still okay, because God is in the presence. But we are used to having a larger church family. It's hurting. It hurts. The church only just started rebuilding the sanctuary. The debris and rotted sheetrock was finally gone when Sivaran walked through it for the first time since repairs began. Oh, wow. This is, this is nice. It's still mostly empty, needing everything from pews to new flooring. But to Sivaran, this is a blessing. This place was destroyed, just like my home. I wasn't sure when we were going to come back in the sanctuary. Sivaran says surviving the storms has made her more prepared. But two things haven't changed. The hope for a quiet hurricane season and the knowledge that it's out of her control. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Now we're going to take a deep dive into something that's been on our radar. Yeah, we at Morning Edition just want to circle back to make sure we're on the same page about something. It's a new survey about the most annoying office jargon. Ugh. A recent poll by the company Preply asked white-collar workers to weigh in on the words and terms they are most sick of hearing at work. The number one most annoying term on the survey, drumroll please, circling back. And it turns out that people are not a fan of coworkers saying touching base or pinging each other. Oh, so Daniel, I think we might be these annoying coworkers here. But is that going to stop me from using this jargon? No. To unpack why certain workplace jargon can be so irritating, we hopped on a call to ask Peter Sokolowski, editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster. When we see terms like fast-paced environment or entrepreneurial spirit, or to wear many hats, they become kind of cliches, and they lose their intensity. They lose a little bit of their meaning. Sokolowski says words that are supposed to bring clarity can start to sound empty if the boss uses them too much. In English, we value clarity and we value simplicity. And especially when explaining complicated ideas, the words that ring true are the ones that break ideas down. So when language is used to create emotional distance, like calling layoffs a reduction in force, people notice Mm -hmm. and they get annoyed. But Sokolowski says workplace jargon does have its place. Another one that people love to hate is onboarding. But the fact is, of course, onboarding serves a function. And uh, if you step back from it, you can realize that, yes, to, you know, give a quick survey of a new workplace to a new employee, there is a utility to that, and maybe we need a name for that. I mean, we could just call it training, but anyway, (laughs) people tend to be pretty conservative with their language habits, Sokolowski says, so when we hear new words, they can get under our skin pretty quickly. We all have peeves about language. We all have preferences about language. And typically, because language always changes, we notice those changes, and we almost always hate 
the changes that we notice. But Layla, you never irritate me with your office jargon, so <laughs> keep on going. Thanks. And a little uh, word from the wise before you ask a coworker to think outside the box, maybe take your own advice and find another way to say that. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And just circling back, I'm Daniel Estrin. Whether you're new to Boston or lived here your whole life, thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. We're Boston's NPR news station. You'll find updates at the start of every hour, along with more context and nuance than just those alerts on your phone. Listen every day here on 90.9 and on the WBUR app. Partly overcast today with temperatures that may reach the upper 80s. Those fall to around 70 tonight and it grows a bit more cloudy. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny and back to the upper 80s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may reportedly make a rare trip to meet with President Vladimir Putin in Russia to discuss supplying arms for use in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, September 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton goes on trial today. He's accused of numerous charges and faces possible impeachment. Seven counts of disregarding his official duties, three counts of making false statements in official records, two counts each of constitutional bribery and obstruction of justice. Also, Israel is ending decades of travel restrictions on Palestinian Americans. I get this tourist visa. He's like, yeah, now you're like a tourist and you can go wherever you want. I was like, really? You know, I was shocked. And this hour, the challenges facing more than 5,000 students living in the Massachusetts family shelter system as the school year starts. Partly sunny in the 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Senate is back in Washington after its summer recess. First on the agenda is passing a funding bill to avoid a possible shutdown. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports there are also questions about the top Senate Republicans' health. The House and Senate haven't agreed on any of the 12 spending bills meant to keep the government funded. There's broad agreement a short-term spending bill needs to pass before federal agencies run out of money on September 30th. But a group of House conservatives are demanding some items have to be part of any new funding bill. But those things are non-starters in the Senate. At the Capitol, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will be the big focus. He froze at a public event last week, the second time in two months. GOP colleagues support McConnell, but questions swirl about his condition and ability to continue to lead his party. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio is to be sentenced in federal court today in Washington. He was convicted last May of seditious conspiracy. That was for his role in the January 6th insurrection against the U.S. Capitol. Three of Tarrio's associates have been sentenced to prison for terms ranging from 10 to 18 years. Teachers in the USA lessons on environmental sustainability should get more time in the classroom, according to a new survey. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports the survey was conducted by the Smithsonian and Gallup. The survey polled teachers in Brazil, India, Canada, France, and the U.S. 
It found that U.S. teachers say they have less support and time than educators in other countries to incorporate sustainability topics like clean energy, air and water pollution, and climate science into the curriculum. For example, more than three-quarters of teachers in Brazil say clean energy, such as wind and solar, is part of the standard science curriculum, while only a third of U.S. teachers say the same. And three-quarters of U.S. teachers surveyed say they don't have adequate instructional materials to cover sustainability topics. The majority of teachers in all five countries say that sustainability and climate science are important and should be taught to every student. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. The White House says First Lady Jill Biden has tested positive for the coronavirus. She has mild COVID symptoms. President Biden has tested negative. Officials say he'll continue to test as he prepares for a major trip to India this week. Pennsylvania authorities continue to search for an escaped convict in Chester County, that is west of Philadelphia. Daniela Cavalcante was imprisoned for killing his ex-girlfriend. Now there have been credible sightings of him. Ryan Drummond told authorities he saw Cavalcante inside his home. I saw him walk out of the kitchen and through our living room, uh, kind of along the side, opened up that door, walked out. He was wearing a white shirt, had a bag. He says his family was home at the time. This is NPR. President Biden will present the Medal of Honor to former Army pilot Larry Taylor today. The former Army captain is being cited for heroism during the Vietnam War. He saved a reconnaissance team that was about to be overcome by enemy fighters, risking his own life to, to rescue the four-man team. A delegation of Australian politicians from across the political spectrum will travel to the United States this month. They're seeking to persuade the U.S. to drop the extradition bid against WikiLeaks founder and Australian citizen Julian Assange. Rachel Bongiorno has more. Assange faces an 18-count indictment under the U.S. Espionage Act. Between 2010 and 2011, Assange, through the WikiLeaks website, published thousands of classified documents relating to the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, which included accounts of torture and executions. For the past four years, Assange has been held in a high-security UK prison after he was evicted from the Ecuadorian embassy, where he sought asylum in 2012. The delegation will meet with members of Congress and the Senate, as well as officials at the State and Justice Departments. They argue Assange's actions should be pardoned under the First Amendment. If extradited, Assange faces a sentence of up to 175 years in prison. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Bongiorno in Melbourne. Authorities in western Nevada say tens of thousands of people started leaving the site of the counterculture Burning Man Festival yesterday. Muddy roads stalled the exodus. More than half an inch of rain inundated the festival site last Friday. It created thick, goopy mud that was a foot deep in some places. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's the first day of school today in many communities, including Peabody, Brookline, and Randolph. Boston students return later in the week, and the city's health department is asking parents and caregivers to make sure students are up to date on their vaccinations. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. City Health Commissioner Dr. Basola Ojikutu says COVID, flu, and other respiratory viruses are sure to be passed around once classes resume. 
She's asking everyone to use common sense before sending their students to school. We want people to keep their children at home if they're sick with symptoms like fever, cough, or sore throat. We really want to keep our school environments as safe as possible for other children, teachers, staff, and their respective households, which may include higher-risk individuals. Ojikutu says there is at least one facility in every neighborhood where residents can get free at-home COVID-19 rapid testing kits. School starts Thursday for most BPS students. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. For Massachusetts to meet its climate goals, the state will need to double the amount of electricity it uses in the next 25 years or so. To help make sure the grid is ready, the state's three electric utilities publish detailed plans about how they'll work to meet the demand. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports. The utility plans call for doing several things building new electrical infrastructure like wires and substations, finding ways to accommodate renewables like rooftop solar power and batteries, and developing technologies and programs to make the grid more efficient and flexible. Melissa Lavinson is with National Grid. She says the plans also outline ways to prepare the grid for the intense heat and storms climate change is likely to bring. At the end of the day, customers are going to get a grid that is more ready and resilient, more reliable. They're going to get a grid that's more flexible, that meets their needs. The public will have a chance to provide feedback on the plans before the final versions are due next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. No arrests yet in the weekend shooting that killed two people and injured five others in Lynn. The shooting took place early Saturday at a college going away party. Police say five people were hurt. A former president of Boston University and the namesake of BU's School of Medicine has died. Aram Chobanian led the university between 2003 and 2005. He was also a cardiologist who joined the BU School of Medicine faculty in 1962. Last year, BU renamed its medical school in honor of Chobanian and his friend, Edward Avedisian. Chobanian was 94 years old. We should note that BU holds the broadcast license for WBUR. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. The Red Sox beat the Tampa Bay Rays 7-3 to yesterday in Florida. The two teams will meet again tonight. Partly sunny and humid today. It'll be in the mid to upper 80s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures around 70. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the upper 80s. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Fazel in Washington, D.C. We have new data on the toll of cluster munitions. That's a kind of bomb that scatters dozens of smaller bombs. They're banned in more than 100 countries, but Russia and Ukraine have used them. The U.S. is actually supplying them to Ukraine. And a report out today from the Cluster Munition Coalition documents 987 deaths and injuries from attacks in 2022. That's compared to zero the year before. Mary Wareham is the Arms Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch and worked on that report, and she joins me now to discuss the findings. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Leila. Mary, if you could just start by breaking down that number. 987 people killed or hurt in attacks last year compared to zero the year before. Where is this happening and to who? 
Correct. Um, 890 of those victims that you just uh, described were in Ukraine and caused, we believe, vast majority by Russian cluster munition attacks, although there's also been the use by Ukrainian forces. We also document for the first time use of cluster munitions by Myanmar, by the junta, mm. uh, as well as by Syria, which used cluster munitions in copious amounts in the 2010s. That kind of died down, but there were more attacks in 2022. It's unconscionable that civilians are still dying in cluster munition attacks 15 years after these weapons were outlawed. And the vast majority of those killed and hurt are civilians in your findings? Uh, about 95% we believe to be civilians, uh, and there may be more that go unrecorded. We also documented about 185 victims from the remnants of cluster munitions, the submunitions that fail to yeah. detonate when they're used and lie in wait, in effect becoming like landmines. Those victims of those remnants were in countries like Yemen, Ukraine, Syria, but also in Laos, where the last cluster munition use was nearly 50 years ago now. That shows the long-term problem caused by cluster munitions, and we believe that the Convention on Cluster Munitions provides the long-term solution to dealing with them. Yeah, I mean, one of the most terrifying things about cluster munitions is that they sit dormant once they've been dropped. I remember being in the south of Lebanon in 2006 during the war between Israel and Hezbollah, and a lot of villages just blanketed in these bombs, including yards, schools. You mentioned um, the convention. There is a global ban on these cluster munitions, but Israel, Russia, and the U.S. are major users and producers. So how much progress can there actually be toward banning and disposing of cluster bombs when these three powerful countries use them? Lebanon and the use there in 2006 was a catalyst for the creation of the Convention on Cluster Munitions, and we're glad to see that 124 countries have signed and ratified uh, the convention since 2008. Um, we need that convention to stand strong and for more countries to join. Therefore, it was good to see Nigeria and South Sudan join the convention this year. Bulgaria destroyed its stockpiles. Bosnia and Herzegovina is about to announce that it has completed the clearance of cluster munition remnants on its territory. So one way in which we respond to the bad news of new use is to demonstrate that the norm against cluster munitions that's enshrined in the convention is strong and that the countries that are part of it are abiding by its provisions despite uh, these devastating developments outside of it. But the two big global superpowers here, Russia and the U.S., aren't signed on. It was deeply disappointing to see the U.S. decision to transfer cluster munitions to Ukraine. We don't know how many were transferred. We don't know when the transfers will end. Uh, and the report doesn't cover the use of the U.S. cluster munitions in Ukraine. That will be for next year. Mm. Um, but it was very devastating because it's so well known, uh, the civilian harm that is caused by cluster munitions, both at the time of use and attacks and afterwards from their remnants. The United States knows full well the impact of cluster munitions. It used them back in Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia and Afghanistan and Iraq, and now it's provided them to Ukraine. It was a shocking development, and we hope that no countries follow that lead and also transfer cluster munitions to Ukraine. Mary Wareham, Arms Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch, joining us from Geneva. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you, Leila. In Texas today, the impeachment trial of suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton begins in the state Senate. Paxton faces 20 charges, including obstruction of justice, conspiracy, abuse of office, and bribery, mostly surrounding his relationship with an Austin real estate developer and Paxton campaign donor. So what can we expect today? Let's go to Sergio Martinez Beltran, political reporter for the Texas Newsroom. He's been following this story very closely. Good morning, Sergio. Good morning, Daniel. 20 charges. Uh, wow. What is he accused of doing? 
Right. I mean, that list is pretty long. Uh, Paxton has been accused of using his office to protect and shield a political donor from an FBI investigation. Uh, this man is named Nate Paul. He is someone who was recently indicted on eight felony counts of making false statements to mortgage lenders and other financial institutions. And Paxton allegedly asked his top staff to help Paul and even kill the federal investigation. So all of this has led to Paxton to be impeached on seven counts of disregarding his official duties, three counts of making false statements in official records, two counts each of constitutional bribery and obstruction of justice. He's also been accused of misapplying and misappropriating public resources, conspiracy or attempted conspiracy, the religion of duty, unfitness for office, and abusing the public trust. Okay, quite a mouthful. So today we are going to hear opening statements and the first witnesses will take the stand. Who's testifying? So we're expecting to hear from those former employees who warned Paxton to stay away from Nate Paul and who ultimately reported Paxton to the FBI. They said there was criminal behavior happening within the office of the attorney general. These whistleblowers were either fired or pushed out by Paxton shortly after. And they are very credible witnesses, Daniel, because one, they are career-long public servants, but also because Paxton is despised by Democrats and those on the left. But the whistleblowers are all conservative Republicans. Huh. And some were even recruited by Paxton personally. We are also expecting to hear from one of Paxton's closest aides who overheard a conversation that House investigators say show Paul was paying for Paxton's home renovations. This aide is already being considered a star witness. And what is Paxton's defense for all this? Well, he was at a rally over the weekend in Collin County. Uh, that's the place where Paxton rose to prominence. But he couldn't say much because there's a gag order in place. But in the past, he has denied any allegations of wrongdoing and has gone after the Republican Speaker of the Texas House for moving forward with the impeachment proceeding in that chamber. In terms of legal defense, one of the main arguments used by his team is a vague rule they call the prior term doctrine. Pretty much, they're saying that Paxton cannot be impeached for actions committed prior to his most recent election, so 2022. A lot of these allegations stem from actions that happened from 2019 to 2020. So under that idea, they're claiming 19 out of 20 articles of impeachment should be dismissed. Now, the Texas Constitution does say that a person cannot be impeached for actions committed before their election to office. But it's not as explicit as Paxton's team is making it sound. It doesn't say most recent election. So that argument is something that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who serves as the presiding officer of the Court of Impeachment, and the senators will have to consider. Okay, we'll be following. Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin, Texas. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been largely considered one of the most viable opponents to Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination next year. In many polls, he's been second to the former president, albeit a very far second. But his campaign has struggled since the very beginning, and it hasn't gotten any smoother in recent weeks. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign famously started kind of rough. All right. Sorry about that. We we've got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers. That's from DeSantis's official campaign announcement during a Twitter live event earlier this year. It was, in short, a logistical disaster, and it kind of set the tone. Besides a lackluster debate performance, there have also been reports that his campaign staff has had a lot of turnover. Republican pollster Whit Ayers has worked on a lot of campaigns, and he says some of this comes from running on the national stage for the first time. Our first presidential candidate 
was fond of saying that going from a statewide race to a presidential contest was like going from eighth grade basketball to the NBA finals. The DeSantis campaign did not respond to multiple requests from NPR for comment. Ayers worked with DeSantis on his 2018 gubernatorial campaign. He says these issues might also stem from the fact that his whole team is new. Ron DeSantis has run five different campaigns, three for Congress, two for governor, and he has had five completely different campaign teams for those five races. Ayer says he didn't hire back some top talent from his team in 2018 or staff from his blowout win in 2022. That creates some real trust issues if you've never been through a political war with the people you're working with today. So it's tough. Politics at any level is a team sport, but it's especially a team sport at the presidential level. In the past two months, it's been reported that DeSantis replaced his campaign manager and laid off at least 10 staffers. Republican strategist Alex Conan says no successful presidential campaign has that much turnover in such a short period of time. I think, you know, successful campaigns have a team on day one that has worked together, that has experience in national politics uh, and who has the, the trust of the candidate. Conant, who worked with Senator Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign, says a campaign that hits a reset button two or three or four times in the middle of the summer isn't doing that because things are going well. It's really hard to change the trajectory of a presidential campaign in the middle of a presidential campaign uh, simply because you're constantly taking so much incoming fire. And when people smell blood in the water, it just attracts more sharks. Things could turn around, though, because there is still a big chunk of the Republican Party open to an alternative to Trump. So Conan says if DeSantis wants to get back to being a serious contender, he's going to have to prove he's a better candidate than his campaign. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Israelis will be allowed to travel to the U.S. without a visa after Israel agreed to lift its longtime travel restrictions on Palestinian and Arab U.S. citizens. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Greener U, working throughout New England to integrate climate action into the entire construction process for a fossil-free future. Learn more at greeneru.com. It might be one of the biggest stories ever told. We're all here because we're committed to the biggest question of all. What's out there? And there's a lot riding on this galactic adventure for its creators and for Microsoft. The new video game Starfield, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny with a high near 86 today. Right now, it's 75 degrees at Boston. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, the Portakalis family is headed to Greece. From director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theaters September 8th. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Daniel Estrin. When it comes to reducing firearm deaths, Americans quickly split into opposing camps. Even the phrase gun control is polarizing. But there is one area where people are coming together, suicide prevention. Suicides account for more than half of gun fatalities nationwide. And as Aaron Bolton at Montana Public Radio explains, one strategy involves zeroing in on not the gun itself, but where it's being kept in times of crisis. In the basement of his home in Helena, Montana, Mike Hosfeld has built a secure room for his collection. He has modern guns and antiques, some dating back to the 1800s. It's all behind this heavy black steel door. But not every gun here is his. There are a few weapons in here that belong to other folks. Hosfeld is storing these guns for friends or relatives who are going through a mental health crisis or simply a rough patch in life. The idea is to put space and time between the gun owners and their firearms. Because suicide, when it happens, is highly impulsive and often depends on what is at hand. Hosfeld emphasizes it's just for now. It's not taking the gun away forever. That's the whole premise is to help people to alleviate the immediate situation. But in the long run, they're able to regain their weapon. In Montana, lawmakers, public health officials, and gun rights advocates are coming together on this strategy. They want more people like Hosfeld to store firearms for others. In Montana, 85% of deaths involving a gun are suicides. The state has the second highest suicide rate in the country after neighboring Wyoming. A new Montana law waives some legal liability for people who store guns for others. Lawmakers hope that will encourage more folks to do it. Hey Pam, do you have a table for us ready to go? That's also why Jess Hegstrom is here at this gun show in Helena. She works on suicide prevention for the county. She's set up an information table and is trying to blend into a sea of camo and folks wearing pro-gun t-shirts. I have like little guns on my earrings. You know, I'm like, I'm cool, I'm friendly. I'm not here to waggle my finger at you. Hegstrom spends a lot of time visiting local gun shops and shooting ranges. She wants them to join a network of places where people can drop off their guns when they're in crisis. So we're just trying to make sure that there's a wealth of options for people to safe store, especially if you can't do it on that, you know, one-on-one basis. There's multiple locations, multiple possibilities. But today, she's just trying to educate gun owners about the idea of voluntary safe storage. It's something that anybody can do for a friend. What are you guys showing? So I'm with a program called Safer Communities Montana, and we're just making sure that people know that if you have someone you're worried about, a friend, that you can hold on to their firearm. 
Utah is also promoting the concept, running public service announcements like this one on TV. Last year I was at my lowest, going through some pretty serious depression. A couple of friends of mine stopped by the house and said they were worried about me. Said they'd feel a lot better if they could hold onto my firearms until things turned around. I think they saved my life. Gun rights advocates are also coming on board and encouraging those kinds of conversations with loved ones. Jason Swant runs a sports shooting group in Helena and also operates a gun range. He says he was reluctant at first. Simply because historically there has been conflict between groups like ours and other groups who are concerned about the safety social issues with firearms. Safe storage programs are voluntary, which he likes. But Swant was afraid of a slippery slope that could eventually lead to legal restrictions, such as red flag laws. Those laws allow courts to seize firearms from people who might harm themselves or others. But Swant joined in because he came to understand that safe storage holds real promise for reducing suicides. We've had a few people let us know that somebody asked and held my firearm and that made a difference. Swant hopes the effort in Montana and similar programs in states like Washington and Colorado will eventually prove to be more effective at stopping suicide than red flag laws. Gun safety researchers like ER Dr. Emmy Betts, who built a safe storage program in Colorado, have a slightly different view. I do think that red flag laws are an important tool in the toolbox, but they're not what we should be reaching for first. Betts says starting with a voluntary approach engages the at-risk person in their own care. What we really want for long-term optimal health is to help the at-risk person be building their own set of skills to get through things themselves with help, but for them to be the one to do it. Researchers are only just beginning to study how often gun owners are using this technique as a way to reduce the risk of suicide. We do know from a survey of firearm owners in two states that about a quarter of people said that they'd stored a gun away from home within the past five years. That to me suggests people are using this, whether for suicide risk or extended travel, deployment. Harvard researcher Kathy Barber says that first, messaging campaigns need to ramp up more to truly change people's behavior. You need the kind of message saturation that we got with designated driver and friends don't let friends drive drunk, where you're seeing it in TV shows, on movies. Some gun owners are getting that message. Peter Wakeham lives in North Carolina, where he designs custom firearms cases for gun owners. He also has a system for his own guns if his depression takes a turn. I have in my telephone a list of my top people, and when things start going dark, they're always available for me to reach out. When things feel worse, Wakeham's friends take his firearms for a while. In his workshop, they change the security code on his gun safe. He also keeps a note inside the gun safe to remind himself to ask for help. The note says, Time to reach out. Things will get better. You're not weak. You're doing the right thing. Make the phone call. Sign Future Pete. He says that note and his personal support network have saved his life multiple times. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Helena, Montana. This story was produced in partnership with Nashville Public Radio and KFF Health News. You can hear a second part to this story this afternoon on All Things Considered. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or are in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. 988. This is NPR News.
Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. As students head back to school, more than 5,000 living in the Massachusetts Family Shelter System face additional challenges. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Texas Senate begins its impeachment trial of suspended State Attorney General Ken Paxton today in Austin. Paxton is facing 20 articles of impeachment from the state house, including bribery and abuse of office. The 60-year-old Republican says the charges against him are politically motivated. He denies any wrongdoing. Federal prosecutors are seeking 33 years in prison for Enrique Tarrio. The former national chairman of the far-right group The Proud Boys is scheduled to be sentenced today for his role in the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. Tarrio was convicted of seditious conspiracy. The White House says First Lady Jill Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. NPR's Hasma Khalid has more. The First Lady is experiencing only mild symptoms, according to a written statement from her spokesperson. She will nonetheless remain at the family's home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. President Biden tested negative and has returned to the White House. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says he'll test at a regular cadence this week and monitor for symptoms. The president is scheduled to depart for a trip to India and Vietnam this coming Thursday. Both the First Lady and the president previously tested positive for COVID last summer. Asma Khalid, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Air conditioners will get a workout this week. Temperatures will flirt with the 90s across Massachusetts, and the humidity will make it feel even hotter. In Boston Public Schools, more buildings now have A.C. for when students go back Thursday. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the city has installed more than 3,800 new window units in classrooms. The cooling project is part of a long-term effort by BPS to improve indoor air quality. Many of the previously unair conditioned buildings required significant electrical upgrades to support the window units. Sumner Elementary School received air conditioning units in June. Principal Megan Welch says it's made a huge difference. I think you can focus more. You know, in the past, I would have to bring so much water just because um, it would be so hot and humid without the air conditioners. So I think it's just a lot easier to get prepared for school opening. The district has spent more than $7 million on the project. There are 10 buildings left in line for installation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. There's a new contract for union firefighters in Boston. Mayor Michelle Wu says an agreement was reached over the weekend. That comes after months of negotiations. The firefighters union in April filed the first step in getting the state involved in creating a new contract. The contract needs to be ratified by union members before details of the agreement are released. Endicott College opens a major new nursing school building today. The facility includes two replica emergency rooms, lab spaces, and traditional classrooms. The building will also house Endicott's sports science program. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
Make it three wins in a row for the Red Sox. They beat the Rays 7-3 yesterday in St. Petersburg. Tristan Casas hit a home run and drove in four runs for Boston in the win. The Sox and Rays will play again tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today will have a high in the mid-80s. Tonight, more clouds move in and temperatures drop to around 70. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies and highs in the upper 80s. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-Dementia.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. For decades, some American citizens have hours of security checks they face, intrusive questioning, and demeaning treatment at Israeli airports and checkpoints. And those Americans are Americans of Palestinian or Arab descent. But now Israel is lifting travel restrictions for Palestinians and Arabs who are U.S. citizens. It's all part of a bid to get Washington to lift visa requirements for Israelis traveling to the U.S., Now, to be clear, Israel is still restricting travel for the vast majority of Palestinians because they don't have U.S. citizenship. But there are already big changes for tens of thousands of Palestinian Americans. If you have a Palestinian ID and a U.S. passport, you can now use Israel's international airport, just like any other American traveler. You no longer have to cross by land through Jordan, which can take twice as long. Palestinian-American Amar Hussein is a therapist in Brooklyn. She recently came to visit family in the West Bank when an Israeli border guard told her the news. He's like, yeah, now you're like a tourist and you can go wherever you want. And, and you know, I, I was like, really? You know, I, I was shocked. Palestinians in the West Bank with U.S. passports can now simply pass through military checkpoints and go wherever they want as an American tourist. And I've heard some pretty wild stories from Palestinian Americans like Mohammed Manasra. I drove through every single checkpoint between the West Bank and Israel. I could within this week. Like, I would literally drive through the checkpoint, make a U-turn, come back, and it just feels like every time I go through a checkpoint, it's like I won. Catch that? He says, it's like I won. Now, what prompted all of this was the U.S. offering a deal. If you let in Palestinian Americans freely, we will let Israelis into the U.S. visa-free. And that is something Israelis have wanted for a long time. Like the Israelis I saw waiting outside the U.S. Embassy branch in Tel Aviv. Right under a sign that says Consular Services, there is quite a line of people lining up with uh, folded papers in their hands. They're waiting for visas. Miami, San Diego, California. One guy, Moshe Cohen, tells me, dude, every U.S. state is its own dream. Yeah. The Harry Potter Park in Orlando is why 12-year-old Smadar Eshkhar and her mom Aili want to go to the U.S. Just to get a visa appointment can take months. You talk to average Israelis, it's the first, second, and third issue they bring up. Scott Lisensky, senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel during the Obama years, 
worked closely with Israeli officials. And occasionally, by the way, when the government official gets you outside the meeting room, they bend your ear about a family member or a, a travel problem that they're facing. There's a list of 40 countries, from Latvia to Croatia to France, where you don't need a visa to come to the U.S. as a tourist. Israel has been trying to get into the program for decades, but Israel never qualified. One reason was a high visa rejection rate, concerns that young Israelis fresh out of the army would overstay their visas. And at one point, U.S. officials worried about Israeli spies getting into the country, and of course, Israel's treatment of Arab Americans at the border. But there was an opening two years ago. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was ousted in an election. After years of his sour relations with Democrats, suddenly there was a new Israeli government the Biden administration wanted to support. A sort of rainbow coalition of Israelis, left, right, center, men, women, Jewish, Arab. And so the U.S. agreed to get working on the visa-free program for Israel. Netanyahu was actually accused of holding up the process in parliament to prevent his opponents from scoring the political win. Now Netanyahu is back in office leading a far-right coalition. And on the one hand, the U.S. has not stopped deadly Israeli raids into the West Bank or settlement expansion on occupied territory. But the U.S. is using the visa issue to wade into one sensitive topic— Israel's border security and the profiling and interrogations used ever since hijackings 50 years ago. And suddenly, in late July, Israel lifted entry restrictions for Palestinian Americans. If I had to guess, the security establishment would have preferred to keep things as they are, but the prime minister felt it's important. Ehud Eran, former Israeli advisor to the prime minister. To be cynical, I think he's in a very difficult time. And if a politician can tell Israelis, you can enter the U.S. without a visa, Big political win. And it has had an immediate impact for Palestinian Americans who reside in the West Bank. Under the new program, Israel reports at least 9,000 entries from the West Bank. And this includes Americans living in the West Bank with their Palestinian spouses. They also have been restricted from entering Israel, like Morgan Cooper. We're living in a science fiction film, except it's our reality. For 10 years, I have not seen the Mediterranean Sea. And this month, they got to rent a car inside Israel for the first time and traveled to the Sea of Galilee to show her kids where tradition holds Jesus preached. So it was just kind of amazing to have this checkpoint kind of open sesame for me. And I think that that's really sad because we are so starved. We are denied our most basic human rights. And that means that when they throw us these tiny little crumbs, we're not only grateful, we want to hug them in gratitude. Mohammed Manasra, the one we heard from earlier who took that joyride through Israeli checkpoints, he was driving through his home village in the West Bank when he suddenly encountered an Israeli checkpoint. And he did something he'd never have the confidence to do without U.S. citizenship. So the soldier looks at me and he's like, can I have your ID? As soon as he looks at the New York State ID, he's like, oh, American, what are you doing here? I looked at the soldier and I was like, this is my town. What are you doing here? So he gave the ID back and he's like, just go, go. He expects Israel to take away these travel freedoms when there's some security crisis. He calls the whole situation ridiculous. I don't know how to emphasize this more, but I am the same person. I am exactly the same person. 
I feel like Israel has been BSing us because all the security procedures they had in place for Arabs overnight just because they wanted to get into the visa waiver program. It's not a done deal. A U.S. official who was not authorized to speak publicly told me Israel still has a way to go in treating Palestinian Americans with equality. The U.S. says it will decide by the end of the month whether Israel has passed the test and Israelis get to travel to the U.S. visa-free. Now, Daniel, there are other big changes that may be happening, namely a possible deal for diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But are the Palestinians at the table here? Yeah, they are. Palestinian officials are holding talks with the Saudis today and U.S. officials tomorrow, and they have demands. They want control over more territory in the occupied West Bank. Palestinian officials think this Saudi-Israel deal could come together pretty soon. So a lot of diplomatic negotiations in the Middle East to follow. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us why all of the extreme weather events across the country this summer has brought renewed attention to the practice of investing based on a company's environmental and social goals. Kids heading to the first day of school in places like Amesbury, Bedford, Billerica, and Randolph will have to cope with our ongoing streak of hot weather. Temperatures will be in the mid to upper 80s today under partly sunny skies. It grows overcast tonight and falls to around 70. Tomorrow, the heat continues with upper 80s and mostly sunny skies. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, summer vacation is ending for lots of people, but in some parts of Massachusetts, that means the start of a busy fall tourist season. And that includes the Berkshires. The region is known for welcoming leaf peepers each autumn. The region's tourism director, Lindsay Schmid, says there's also apple picking, hiking, and local festivals. Berkshire Botanic Gardens has brought their Harvest Festival back last year, and it will happen again this year. Apple Squeeze is happening in Lenox. Fresh Grass will be the weekend of the 22nd, and that's at Mass Mocha, a three-day bluegrass music festival. You know, just a sprinkling of things that are happening (laughs) this fall. Schmid says fall is also a great time for art in the Berkshires. Art Week will take place in October across the region. It's 844. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Across Massachusetts, kids are either getting ready to go back to school or their classes have already begun. That includes more than 5,000 children in the state-funded family shelter system. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, things are particularly challenging for newly arrived immigrant children. Rapido, rapido. Oh. The day I met Javier, who's five, he was running races with a shelter employee. His family is staying in Boston at a facility run by Family Aid. Javier and his mom, Shirley Osea, have been on the road since he was born. They're fleeing unrest and an untenable economic situation in Haiti. 
Javier's mom says she left Haiti in 2017. They traveled from the Dominican Republic to Chile and Mexico, two U.S. states, and then Massachusetts. There were terrible moments. At one point, Javier got stuck under a border fence. But she says watching her son head to school makes things a lot better. He can't sleep, Osea says, because he's so excited for school. He asks her, Mom, when am I going to school? I can't wait to go to school. The eager anticipation of school is something I've heard repeatedly this summer when talking to newly arrived immigrant children in the family shelter system. But many of them have more obstacles to navigate. Childhood vaccinations is one big issue. Don Fakuda with the Department of Public Health says teams are preparing to bring shots to shelters. They needed time to order those vaccines. We needed time to make sure they could properly store and handle them. Mobile clinics are slated to start Thursday. Fukuda says many kids are already vaccinated, but their records aren't in the state system. Federal law and guidance from the state's Department of Elementary and Secondary Education says kids who are homeless can enroll even without the usual vaccination records. But there are also local determinations and interpretations of that policy, uh, and so it is a school district-level determination. The result, advocates say, is some kids are missing the beginning of the school year. Gerald Gabo runs the Immigrant Family Services Institute. She worries the state's shelter vaccination program is too small. It's not where it needs to be. Unfortunately, a number of our children will probably have a delay in, in terms of getting to school. Uh, because of that, we believe that for most, there will be a delay. Gabo's other big concern is navigating the enrollment process. She says that's particularly hard for the more than 700 families placed in unstaffed overflow hotels. They haven't had access to caseworkers and translators. Gabo's hoping religious groups and school districts can step in. We cannot wait for all of the bureaucracy to be put in place for us to really be there to support those families. This week, National Guard members are expected to arrive and help fill the gap. But school enrollment can be further complicated because many families don't know how long they'll stay in one shelter location. Is it a day, a week, a year? Parents are like, okay, I would rather wait and enroll my child where I know that this is where I'm going to live. The uncertainty is also hard for school districts. Many of them haven't had warning about family shelter placements, and they often don't have people on staff who speak Haitian Creole, the primary language for many of the newly arrived kids. We're much better equipped as a district to communicate in Spanish. Um, And so now we're trying to adjust. That's Steve Zreich, the school superintendent in Salem. Midway through the last school year, an empty dorm at Salem State was temporarily converted to a family shelter. The district's translation and interpretation team scrambled to respond. Luckily, he says many of the children learned some Spanish during their journeys to the U.S. Zreich says the students adapted, but some logistics proved hard and expensive. The students' resilience is just amazing. But I think transportation was by far the biggest challenge for us. The state-funded family shelter system is now serving roughly 25,000 people, an all-time high. Zreich says some of the kids have no formal schooling, others an interrupted education.
He expects that the 80-plus communities with shelter placements will have more bumps to navigate this school year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on a report about a rare meeting planned between the leaders of Russia and North Korea. Plus, we'll learn about a lawsuit against the Kenyan government over the effects of climate change. It's 8.50. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moe, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. Very few Americans say they're better off financially this year than they were last year. That's according to a large new survey. And they're feeling that way despite indicators that say the economy is on the up. About a year ago, inflation was like 9%. It was over 9%. And now it's 3 That's a great achievement. So what's behind the pessimism Americans have about their own financial lives? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Senate is back in Washington today after the summer recess with a government shutdown looming next month. The former head of the right-wing extremist group The Proud Boys faces sentencing today for his role in the January 6 attack on the Capitol. And the White House says First Lady Jill Biden has tested positive for COVID. President Biden tested negative. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Upper 80s and partly sunny today, it falls to around 70 tonight. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. A cable giant goes up against a media giant. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. From Marketplace in Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo in for David Brancaccio. If you've wanted to watch the U.S. Open or college football over the last few days and you're a Spectrum cable customer, you probably have been out of luck. Disney's ESPN, ABC, and other channels are blocked on Spectrum because parent company Charter is in what it considers a defining standoff with Disney. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. Nearly 15 million people pay for cable through Spectrum, and right now they're not exactly getting their money's worth. No ESPN, no ABC, no Disney Channel, and no sense of when that might change. 
The two companies are facing off over how much Charter should pay Disney to carry its content on cable, and whether Charter customers should get access to Disney's streaming apps for free. This kind of dispute over carriage fees is not new. Channels go dark on cable providers from time to time. But something about this feels bigger. Charter, one of the largest cable companies in the country, is saying the cable TV model is broken. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. The way we talk about jobs data these days can have a kind of bad news is good news dynamic. For, for instance, slowing job growth and rising unemployment last month being a positive sign for fighting inflation. But there were also some unequivocally good data points in the August jobs report, especially for women. Marketplace's Megan McCarty-Carino reports. The share of women in the labor force continues to grow even faster than participation for men. And the gap between them was the narrowest it's ever been in August, says Lauren Bauer at the Brookings Institution. Women with young children are participating at much higher rates now than they were before the pandemic hit. She says flexible and remote work have helped some moms, but another key support is falling away, says Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner with the nonprofit Moms Rising. There's a childcare cliff happening in September. This month, billions of dollars in pandemic relief funds for childcare are expiring. I'm Megan McCarty Carino for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. While markets are absorbing yet another another data point showing that the world's second largest economy, China, is struggling. A private sector survey shows Chinese services activity growing at its slowest pace in eight months. The news depressed oil prices. Brent, the global benchmark, is down six-tenths percent. On Wall Street, futures are mixed. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. ESG has become a loaded term. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. And it's an investment strategy that considers those factors when assembling a portfolio. The idea has gotten caught up in political tug-of-wars. But is it a good way to invest? Marketplace's Sabri Benisher put that question to Rich Newsom, Global Chief Investment Strategist at the consulting firm Mercer. How have ESG funds performed compared to the rest of the stock market so far this year? We ran an analysis year-to-date of the 10 largest ESG-themed funds as identified by Statista.com, and only three of the 10 had outperformed the S&P 500 year-to-date, and two of them have actually delivered a negative year-to-date return, even though the S&P 500 is up double digits. That's interesting because I recall just a few years ago, people promoting ESG funds were pointing out that they were outperforming just about everything. During COVID in particular, when oil prices dropped into the 10s or 20s, in general, ESG-themed funds did well. That reversed in 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine, oil prices went past $100 a barrel, and a lot of ESG investors were surprised that they substantially underperformed the market due to being light in traditional energy. Central to ESG funds are values, and that has made them controversial, politicized even. They've been the target of Republican lawmakers who claim the funds politicize investment instead of worrying about the bottom line. What's your perspective on that? 
So I have a contrarian view that's not popular with either end of the political spectrum, which is that the conversation we're having now in the headlines and, and with politicians involved about ESG, it's actually the same conversation we've been having within investment committee rooms on the institutional side for more than 30 years. And at the end of the day, it's constructive because it's educating investors that ESG is not one size fits all. There are things to look at here. You need to understand what's in the package and your own beliefs about risk return drivers or impact that you want to have in the world or values will drive you to a different answer. Even within the most passionate, sophisticated ESG investors, there are big differences in belief. If we just take climate change and carbon emissions, there's part of the ESG committed community that believes in net zero and that portfolios should have a net zero commitment and go to net zero. There's another part of the ESG community that is saying, actually solving your portfolio, taking your portfolio to net zero, we could do that tomorrow. That doesn't change the world very much. If you want to change the world, you need to put your money into clean tech and green tech and green infrastructure investments. And if you don't do that, we won't solve climate change. Given the natural disaster after natural disaster that we have seen this year, whether it's wildfires or extreme heat, flooding, hurricanes, E and ESG is environmental factors. Is there any sense that the, the urgency of this severe weather is drawing more people to consider ESG funds right now? Definitely the widespread coverage of major environmental disasters, it is causing both institutional and retail investors to think about more carefully, what do we believe will drive security prices or what impact do we have want to have in the world and, and can we make money from having that impact? Or are there just values we want to reflect in our portfolio because we don't want to make money off things that are actually hurting the planet and we'd rather make our money off things that are helping. Rich Newsom is Global Chief Investment Strategist at the consulting firm Mercer. Thank you, Rich, so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks to my colleague, Sabri Benishur, for that interview. In Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo with a Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.